As we come to the end of 2018, let's take a look at some of the important events that happened this year around diversity and inclusion in technology. The UK introduced mandatory reporting of the gender pay gap, and results show that almost 8 in 10 companies and public sector bodies pay men more than women. Amazon reportedly had an internal AI recruiting tool that was biased against women. A Booking.com survey showed that 42% of women admit that gender bias in tech is worse than expected. In this episode of Nevertheless, we look at why diversity and inclusion in tech is more important now than ever before. Recorded at a live event in London, a collaboration between Ada's List and Nevertheless, we speak to Tracy Chow and Jyoti Chopra. Tracy is a software engineer who has worked at Quora and Pinterest. She is well known for her work pushing for diversity in tech. In 2013, she helped to kick off the wave of diversity data disclosures in tech companies when she published a spreadsheet containing the numbers of women in engineering. Tracy is now a founding member of Project Include and is focused on driving solutions in the space. Jyoti is Senior Vice President and Global Leader of Diversity and Inclusion at Pearson. She is a member of the Board of Advisors at Toyota Motor Company and previously held prominent positions at Deloitte, Merrill Lynch and BNY Mellon. Ada's List is a global community of those who identify as women in tech with over 6,000 members. This is Nevertheless a podcast about learning in the modern age. Each episode, we shine a light on an issue impacting education and speak to the people creating transformative change. Supported by Pearson, and this episode hosted by me, Anjali Ramachandran. Starting at the very beginning, uh, both of you are very accomplished people and it's amazing to have you here. But both of you have also done a lot uh, within the area of diversity and inclusion uh, in your careers, in addition to your day jobs, uh, which are obviously very, very busy. Um, And I'd like to start by talking about what diversity and inclusion actually means to both of you and and what you think it means to most people and where the imbalance is, if, if there is any. From everything that I've seen and read, diversity is usually referred to in terms of recruitment. So do you have a diverse workforce? Or an inclusion is usually spoken about with regard to culture. So what are the things that you're doing to make a team feel included? The most popular thing I've said is diverse, I've seen is that diversity is what you, what, what you say and inclusion is what you do. Um, so what, what do those terms mean to you? It's become a catch-all phrase today in my opinion. Um, what do they, but they're very important words, nevertheless. So, <laughs> nevertheless, bingo. <laughs> but but uh, what do they mean to you? Uh, Jyoti, would you like to? Sure, happy to start. And uh, hello and good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And really a special shout out to Nathan and the extended team for putting this together. And of course, to you, Anjali, for moderating and for your partnership uh, and the relationship with Ada's List. Um, so when I think about diversity, um, I think about the um, some of the parts and what is it that makes an individual special, unique, different, industri- in- interesting. And it's the composite of experiences, of backgrounds, of environment, of ideas. Um, it's, it's a plethora of all of those things and other characteristics that make an individual 
diverse, unique, special. And so I think about diversity in the broadest sense. Uh, you have the traditional classifications and definitions of diverse individuals by racial or ethnic ca characteristics, by sexual orientation, gender, veteran status. Uh, some of this is governed by uh, regulatory or legislative um, aspects in different countries. But to me, um, I've been very interested in this whole notion of diversity 2.0, which is having a much broader frame of reference through which you think about diversity. And it encompasses things like global acumen, cultural agility, um, uh, being able to navigate across different generations as an example. And so that's what diversity is. It's, it's lots of things. Inclusion, on the other hand, is, is more behavioral. And I think about inclusion, for example, in the context of a workplace environment or a workplace culture. And what is it that makes an environment or a culture welcoming where people can be respected, bring their authentic selves to work, not have to hide parts of their identity or blend in? And so um, those are some of the aspects of inclusion, but I see them as very distinct and very different. Uh, what I would add on the discussion of diversity is that it's a property of a group, um, it's not a property of an individual. So when people say a diverse individual or a diverse hire, that makes no sense to me mm -hmm. um, because you could have someone who's traditionally underrepresented in the tech workforce, say a black woman, but if you were to have a whole team of black women, that's not a diverse team either. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a little bit of conflation of those terms and diversity to me is in, when you look at a group that there is a whole um, spectrum of representation across many different dimensions, um, gender, race, age, sex, uh, sexual orientation, uh, background, socioeconomic status, all these different things, and also the intersectionality of those. Um, so it's not just a whole bunch of white women and black men or something like that. Um, we have this really rich cross-section. Um, and inclusion, uh, similar to what Jyoti was saying, is around actually having people uh, feel that they can participate and um, are set up to succeed. Um, so one of the other kind of like pithy things I've seen floating around Twitter about diversity and inclusion is diversity is um, getting invited to the dance and inclusion is being invited to dance at the dance. <laughs> You touched upon something really interesting, which is intersectionality. Um, that, to my mind, is a very, well, it's, it's a very American word, I think. There's not a lot of understanding um, in, in the rest of the world, in my opinion, personal opinion at least, uh, of what intersectionality means. People are, you know, groups of people are by definition intersectional. Uh, when those groups come together, you're, you're likely to see a, a few of these characteristics pop up in one place. But how do you think we can help the rest of the, the working world, technology especially, understand the importance not only of diversity and inclusion, but intersectionality as well in building teams that are uh, strong and resilient? The first thing I would start with is just um, elaborating a little bit more on this idea of intersectionality. Um, so uh, I guess there's the idea that we have all these different uh, dimensions of our identity that intersect. Um, and so if you were to just treat one dimension of it, um, let's say we're looking at diversity of gender and we just try to solve gender without looking at all the other intersections with race, for example, we won't do an, we won't do an effective job. Um, the experience of a white woman is very different than the experience of an Asian woman or a black woman or Latina woman or a Muslim woman. And so when we are too, um, we're, when we flatten uh, these dimensions and are only solving for women, we often um, actually do a disservice to the overall diversity and inclusion movement. 
some of the interesting stats that you might see around this um, are uh, there's this this index called the Executive Parity Index, which compares overall representation um, of a group to the representation in leadership, and so that gets at some of the some of these um, more subtle signals of like who gets promoted um, and who's viewed as a leader. And if you look at the executive parity index of white men, it's the highest. So they're the most overrepresented in leadership relative to overall population. For white women, it's about 1.1. So it's slightly overrepresented in leadership. And then if you look at any other um, race uh, and gender combos, it's way less. So actually Asian women and Asian men do particularly poorly in tech. Um, and that's partly because there's a lot of Asian people in tech, uh, and then partly because there's very few Asian people in leadership. Um, so if we were just to solve the, the gender diversity problem, uh, we might just be helping more white women advance while uh, all the other uh, races and ethnicities fall behind. And that's actually something that we have seen with diversity in Silicon Valley and tech industry. Um, in the last few years, we've seen some advances in gender diversity, um, so slightly more representation of women in engineering teams and in leadership, and we've actually had backsliding um, in racial diversity. So that's just like a, a primer on uh, some of the intersectional uh, intersectionality issues. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that was, I think that's, that was really insightful. Uh, Jyoti, working as you have in, in big companies um, throughout your career, what do you think are the biggest challenges in um, bringing diversity, inclusion, intersectionality to the forefront uh, with executive teams? So I think um, w- um, one of them is having a common understanding of what is meant by diversity and inclusion and establishing a common set of objectives or priorities because it means different things to different people. So I think one of the places to begin is to come up with a framework through which you define for your organization what do you mean by diversity, equality, belonging, inclusion, Um, sitting down and talking to your executive teams around what are the goals and priorities for the organization that you want to set out and chart. But really where the challenges come in is, and particularly for global organizations, is you have international workforces, but you are governed by regulations and legal norms on a country-by-country level basis, and these vary vastly on a geographic basis. So while you may be able to collect racial diversity data in countries like the US and the UK, you absolutely can't in other parts of the world, as an example. And so it's highly nuanced, and you have to calibrate um, based on the operating environment in which you're in. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And in many respects, this is actually counter to um, what technology has enabled in the form of uh, global teaming, global uh, working enablements. Technology, in many respects, has broken down barriers and removed boundaries, and you have global workforces that are working um, uh, through virtual teams, um, for example. And so I think there's a tremendous responsibility on the part of companies today to make sure that they have cultural sensitization, that they're working in accordance with local norms and regulations, Um, And that they're always continuously training, educating, and reminding their own workforce of the need to be sensitive to differences um, across countries, even though you're a global team and you're a global workforce. Um, You know, somebody sitting in another part of the world may just not even be able to talk about certain things, right? Mm. And so um, that that is probably, I think, one of the the greatest challenges in the space. 
Thank you. Um, Tracy, you've worked uh, at Pinterest amongst many other companies in the past, and that's a very different environment from a big company like Pearson, for example. What are the challenges there you know, when, you, when you want to bring something um, to the fore with regard to you know, the importance of diversity and inclusion? Um, and you did this um, back, in, back in the day, I'd like to say, but a few years ago where you, you actually created a spreadsheet where you asked um, companies and employees of uh, startups like Twitter and Facebook and the like to actually declare how many uh, male and female engineers they were employing. Now, um, w- with regard to how different it is from what Jyoti has just described, uh, would you say are they less or more aware of the issues and, and you know, how can they surmount those issues? I think one of the biggest challenges for startups is this incredible urgency they have to build a product and get product market fit and not run out of money and die. So the short-term versus long-term trade-offs can feel a lot more pressing. Um, And so in the startup environment, you may just need to hire somebody now or yesterday to build this product and make sure that it's built within the three months of runway that you have left. Um, So oftentimes the the goals of hiring um, and building company culture with uh, an eye towards diversity and inclusion can cause a slowdown in that velocity which trades off very uh, very heavily against um, the sheer execution that's needed. Um, and so the way the startups uh, can think about it um, is almost like debt. So you can, it's fine to incur debt. Um, if you're starting a business, you may need to just take out a loan. Um, you just need to pay down that debt at some point. Uh, and in the same way that you can have financial debt or technical debt on the engineering side, you can have diversity debt. And you may need to take on that debt in the beginning because you just can't build a completely diverse team from the get-go when you are constrained uh, by the amount of cash you have in the bank um, and you have existential risk of not existing in six months. Um, but just be cognizant, the longer that you're um, building on that debt and it's compounding, the harder it will be to pay down in the future. Mm. So... Um- in Silicon Valley, you have companies like Uber, um, where Travis Kalanick, you know, did such a disservice, in my opinion, to the whole to, to the whole startup world. Um, and, um, and there are companies that still thrive on that culture that think, you know, working 12, 18 hour days is is the done thing, and that's a good thing. There are lots of people who can't and don't want to work that way, and, and increasingly are not. Women are amongst them because they have a lot of other responsibilities. Um, I'm not saying men don't, but largely it is women who do take um, the lion's share of responsibilities at home. Um, and how do you think startup culture has been responding to, to the increased awareness of uh, burnout and uh, the lack of inclusivity in, uh, in yeah, their workforce? Yeah, I think workforce? more and more there are startups that acknowledge the need for work-life balance, or for some companies, they build that into their culture. I would actually say that um, an interesting counterpoint to this sort of startup culture uh, tipping more towards work-life balance is looking at China, where they work really hard. I'm not sure if uh, people here are familiar with the term 996. So it was something that um, I learned recently. So I think it was actually a company in China that was uh, advertising how much work-life balance they had, and they said they were 996, which is they only work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. <laughs> and, and that's, that's good, um, relatively speaking. And I do think there are some people who uh, subscribe to that sort of philosophy who look at the companies advertising like true work-life balance and much more normal working hours, people being able to disconnect, um, and say these companies are not going to succeed. 
I think there are different types of companies and different cultures that will work for different people. Um, but there may be some types of companies that just can't get built when you're not working those insane hours if your competitors are working those hours. Just another point I'd add. One of the, one of the trends that we've been seeing is um, a lot of companies starting to integrate um, health, mindfulness, well-being as part of their overall benefits package. So in addition to offering work-life flexibility, sabbaticals, you're starting to see, I think, more companies um, really focus on um, things like stress, financial planning, and things that are often triggers in people's lives and, and offer everything from counseling services to financial education and financial well-being services to increased uh, parental leave policies. And so I think the trend is definitely going in that direction and it's something I think is actually going to increase. When we talk about words like diversity and inclusion, a lot of people, as, as we spoke about earlier, they come at it from different places. And it makes it very hard to measure, therefore, what success, success looks like. What, in your opinion, are the best ways of, uh, of measuring uh, success, what success looks like when it comes to diversity and inclusion um, and, and success for businesses in general you know, linked to that? What are the best metrics you've seen? Yeah, so um, I'm happy to start on this one. Um, I've done a lot of work in this in different organizations. I think it's, it begins with first having a clear framework around your goals and objectives, right? So specifying what is it you're trying to achieve? Is it increasing gender representation? Is it increasing the representation of people in color? Is it creating a more engaged, inclusive workforce? Um, uh, and so on? Is it having your products and services culturally relevant and bias-free and more accessible as, as examples? Once you've defined what your goals and your objectives are, then you can begin to build a measurement framework. And um, I, I think it's really important to have a measurement model that is both quantitative and qualitative. So yes, you can look at traditional measures of diversity, um, and those are typically, you'll look at um, the composition of women in the workforce, and you can do that by country or globally. Racial diversity in the countries where you are legally permitted to capture and track and report on racial diversity. Um, but you may want to include things like um, employee engagement survey scores, uh, look at impact on business and revenue. For example, if you have customer-facing uh, diversity initiatives, if you're targeting diverse customer segments, if you're measuring by product sales. So uh, just to give you an example and to bring this to life, I serve on uh, Toyota's Diversity Advisory Board for North America, uh, and, you know, Toyota uh, tracks very carefully um, its sales in the multicultural markets. Um, uh, and so you could have measures uh, based on customer segments, as an example. Supplier diversity is another dimension, right? Uh, companies track their spend on diverse suppliers and what portion of their total procurement spend is going to diverse suppliers. And then you can look at things like your ratings and rankings and uh, involvement um, in indices. You know, where are you in the Bloomberg equality, gender equality index, et cetera. Um, and so those would be a few um, guides. Right. Thank you. Assuming that, you know, a, a startup founder is trying to, to build this company at breakneck speed, at, uh, as Tracy was saying, um, and they're also an incredibly mindful person. Let's assume that they are. <laughs> um, and, they want to, and they want to do all these things at the same time they can't. Which 
three would you prioritize over the rest uh, and why? Yeah, I, I, I think it. I, I think candidly, it really depends on. I, I think that's something that the CEO and and his or her leadership team should identify yeah. based on what their priorities are. If getting their products out in the market to sale for a certain type of customer segment is their number one priority, and they've got a certain period of time in which to do it. Um, putting a, a measurement model around that. So I think I think it really depends on the company, their criteria, uh, what the objectives of the management team are. And I don't think it necessarily has to be just the decision of the CEO or the chairman. I think often what makes it powerful is when it's sort of a collectively and a shared um, owned um, uh, set of measures. Um, but But I would say... Certainly, product services sales is a, is a very important metric. Um, I think composition of the workforce, um, and I think some form of engagement scores. So those would probably be my top three. Okay, thank you, Tracy. When you um, created that spreadsheet, that was to measure uh, diversity of the workforce. From then to to now, uh, which is a world where you know. Communities like Project Include exist, and communities like Aidas List exist. Exist. Um, what change have you seen over the years when it comes to measuring? And do you think more people are more aware and want to measure those kinds of things in their companies with regard to workforce? I think the biggest change is that companies are actually measuring diversity now. Uh, surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, And it may be at a level that feels superficial. Oftentimes it is limited to gender and race, sometimes not even intersectionally. Uh, But I do think that is at least a starting point. And lack of diversity along those dimensions is often a red flag for lack of diversity elsewhere. Um, So most companies now at least pay a little bit of attention to the diversity of their uh, demographics of the workforce. in terms of overall what's been going on in the ecosystem, I think there's been a lot more talk um, because there is this data there that shows what, how big the problem is. There's a lot more people talking about the problem. Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen as much uh, in the way of success in um, making headway against the lack of diversity. Uh, so there's starting to be more money splashed around and people announcing big efforts and PR, but not nearly as much in terms of traction on actual efforts, um, which is a little bit of a bummer. Um, I think it's also leading to some uh, tech like diversity backlash and diversity fatigue, um, which is worrisome to me uh, in that you know, some people who are maybe not as bought into diversity and inclusion efforts are hearing it, it discussed all the time, feel like it's, um, it's not meaningful and we're wasting time discussing things that aren't turning into any real change. And so we should therefore just stop wasting time talking about it. So I'm concerned that we're not moving fast enough on that. Um, one of the other things that's played out the last five years or so, I'd say, is that um, more people are aware of diversity being beyond gender um, to also include race. Um, and I think that's also um, because there's other movements that have been happening at the same time, like Black Lives Matter. So there's more attention paid on race now. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, also the uh, progress we've seen in some, like very, very minor progress, like single, very like low single-digit percentage um, increases in gender diversity or women's representation um, has also been matched by backslides in racial representation. So that's kind of the overall landscape that I've seen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, one of the best things that I think the UK has done recently is actually make um, gender pay gap reporting mandatory for companies that have more than 250 employees. Um, I think that's really forced the hand of a lot of um, executive teams, uh, at least in this country. And it's I've heard anecdotally that it's really helped women because the data is there. They can take that data, go to their boss and say, well, this is the average or the, the, you know, the mean or median or whatever they want to use. And you, know, you need to pay me fairly. Um, are there ways that well, governments and the law um, that you should be doing more, um, in your opinion, in different countries around the world? Um, there's no question in my mind that the trend and the movement is towards greater disclosure and um, much higher levels of transparency. And what I've been encouraged by has been actually to see regulators and governments um, beginning to really sort of step in uh, coalesce around it. I, th I think there's a tremendous amount of work still to be done, um, even in the countries that are now doing this. In the U.S., for example, um, under the Dodd-Frank Act, Section 342, the financial services industry has now been regulated, uh, but it's it's to provide voluntary self-assessments on diversity and inclusion. Most of the major banks and firms have, have complied and submitted voluntary self-assessments. But that's still a start. I think that um, I, I think one needs to be careful not to confuse things like gender pay equity with equal pay. They're two very different concepts, right? And what gender pay equity transparency does is it really shows the differences between men and women at different quartiles, um, which basically correlates to job grades. And the underlying root cause of it is basically that you have far fewer women um, often in management positions than you do have men. That's really what it, it's opening. And so the onus is then on the companies to say, if we have a gap, what are we going to do about it? And what becomes important is then the action plan or the what I'd call interventions um, in order to really change those numbers. And that's really, I think, the call to action. I'm incredibly proud at Pearson of um, the work that's being done. You know, we've put together a five-point action plan. Our, uh, uh, our women's uh, employee resource group has been actively championing um, a lot of uh, the work and supporting some of the initiatives. And so it takes a coalition and it takes a combination of senior uh, management, executive team level ownership, and then driving it through the organization. One specific thing I would say that governments could do, um, and, and some state governments are doing this in the, in the United States, is mandating minimum percentages of women on boards. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit more achievable. Um, to say like if you have a 10-person board, you should have at least three women. Yeah. Um, the the numbers are small enough in those ranks that I think it is actually possible. And um, given that the job of the board is governance, hopefully they can have that effect um, spill down as well. Yeah. I want to come back uh, to something a bit more personal now. Uh, nevertheless, at the podcast, we've um, commissioned a set of posters about STEM role models. Tracy and Jyoti, if you could tell us uh, who your personal role models are um, in, in this field, in, in technology, ed tech, uh, whatever you want to go by. Tracy? Yeah. Um, one person I think of as a role model is Megan Smith. Mm -hmm. So she was formerly CTO of the United States. 
Um, she is an MIT-trained engineer, worked at Google and Google X, which is a VP there, and then she went on to go work with the U.S. federal government, and I intersected with her briefly there when I was working in the U.S. Digital Service. Um, I think she's just an amazing leader, um, and on the engineering side, she's extremely credible and has done a lot of good work there. Um, on the diversity and inclusion front, she has a very good way of um, helping people to feel the urgency around diversity and inclusion. Um, she frames it as unlocking talent um, in a way that makes people feel uh, compelled to act but not feel guilty. Um, and so it's a very fine balance to strike in these very difficult conversations um, that can touch on issues of privilege and power and structural issues that need to be resolved. Um, and people can get very defensive. I think she's very good at leading people um, in her work and, and how uh, she speaks about these things. And I, I have actually um, followed and admired Sheryl Sandberg for igniting the debate and for sort of spawning and catalyzing um, not just the lean-in movement, um, but I think broader conversations about the ownership that women have to have around their careers in many respects. Um, I found her um, last book, Option B, um, very moving and very powerful, which was written in the aftermath of the death of her husband. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you think you've got your life planned and your career planned and something devastating happens. And then what do you do, right? You've got to go to plan B or you've got to have a plan B. But I find that um, she's a very practical, pragmatic leader and uh, has inspired this movement which really centers around getting women to pull their confidence levels up and to really be at those tables in, in the office or in the boardroom or wherever. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind that that has, has had a galvanizing shift for millions of women around the world. I'm actually kind of curious to follow up on that because sure. in a lot of the diversity and inclusion circles that I'm a part of, um, Cheryl is not regarded that well um, for her work um, because it has more of this flavor of wealthy white privilege and white feminism yeah. um, and encouraging women to lean into systems that may be very much stacked against them. At the same time, I recognize that she has done a lot to advance uh, the discussion around feminism and women in the workplace. I'm just curious your thoughts on that sort of criticism of Cheryl. I hear that criticism, mm -hmm. particularly in the Western world. You know, I've, I've given copies of her books to people, for example, in places like India and other countries where they have very few role models often. And topics like this aren't even talked about. Mm -hmm. And they take a book like Lean In and all of a sudden it opens their eyes to the possibility of what they could be and what they could see, them, how they see themselves. So I have a very different take on it. I'm, I'm well aware of the criticism of her and um, my, my view is I look at the impact of the movement that she launched and the effect that that has potentially had on literally millions of women around the world. Um, that are behaving differently, that are energized by it, that are all of a sudden reflecting on themselves in different ways. And I find that actually quite powerful. 
I wrote a piece recently for the Sunday Times about uh, flexible working um, and, and the importance of it for women in the workplace to be able to succeed because that's something that you know, at Story Things we're very fortunate to be able to do. Um, and uh, hearing you talk, Jyoti, I was reminded of uh, something that someone I sent the article to back in India said, which, and she basically said, it's a great piece, but flexible working is nowhere on the agenda for, for people like us in India, for women like us in India, because the culture is completely different. Um, and sitting as we are in, in London here right now, um, and you know, you, you work, both of you work in the US as well, what do you think we, but also people in general, people who run companies in general, need to be mindful of when they build workforces that are arguably building products that are going to be used by people across the world? Well, I think you have to put it on the agenda and you have to talk about it, um, for one thing. And even if you're making products and services and you've got sales targets and you're from a different culture or you're operating in a different environment from your head office um, and cultural norms vary, as we know, um, you have to talk about it. You have to put diversity and inclusion on the agenda. You have to um, constantly repeat, reinforce. Um, and this is where I think actually having a value system embedded in your cultural DNA comes into play, right? So uh, understanding what you stand for. You know, if, I, if I, I'll use Pearson as an example. I mean, the values of Pearson, what it represents, being brave, imaginative, decent, accountable, is really ingrained in everything we do, whether it's um, content production, distribution, products, the way people uh, conduct themselves. Um, it's almost like a code of honor, and people are very proud of it. And so I think linking your diversity and inclusion work, the messaging into a cultural, a larger cu cultural framework that is relevant for the context in which you're businesses are being conducted, the markets in which you're selling your products and services, it all has to be tied and, and linked and connected and then just reinforcing that for every employee, irrespective of grade level or where they sit in an organization. That concluded our evening's conversation. We'd like to thank Jyoti and Tracy for their valuable thoughts and to everyone in the audience for being there. Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Series producer is Renee Richardson. Executive producers are Nathan Martin and Anjali Ramachandran. This episode was produced and written by Story Things. Live event production Amanda Murray and Joe Moon Price. Live audio recording by Spellbinder. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer and Michael Simonelli. Supported by Pearson and presented by me, Anjali Ramachandran. Full transcripts, additional reading and episodes can be found at nevertheletspodcast.com. Subscribe for free, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.